Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. First Chronicles 21 is where we're picking up tonight. Um, believe it or not, we only have a few teachings left in First Chronicles. We've kind of buzzed through this book. Tonight we're going to slow down and just do the one chapter. The writers of Chronicles, Ezra and his priest group, are gathering a new history book for the nation. And that history book is designed to encourage the Babylonian exiles to come out of Babylon and build this new temple. And part of what we're getting to tonight is the location of that temple is important. And that God ordained a place for this to happen on the earth with a certain group of people on this earth. As Christians, we read the Old Testament as always because there's things here to learn. We learn the nature of God, his relationship to nations, and how it works. So we're kind of coming at that in 21. Chapters 1 through 12 gave the genealogies of Adam to Israel and all the different groups that made up Israel. They weren't just Jewish people. There were other people that were part of Israel as a nation. Chapters 13 through 17, how to follow God's lead. When David inquires of the Lord, things go well. When he doesn't inquire, Uzzah gets killed. And we're going to see kind of that piece here too, and that in battle and in everything, when David inquires of the Lord, the nation advances. When he doesn't inquire of the Lord, things go wrong. And what we're going to see here today is kind of, I think, the end of that sequence uh, as to how that looks. So, um, we get to verse 1, which is, we'll spend some time with this because people get really tied up on this. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I might know it. And Joab answered, may the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are, but my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does the king require this thing? Why should he cause, uh, why should he be the cause of guilt in Israel? So people get tied up on this, especially the now Satan part. 2 Samuel 24, if you want to flip back and forth for your own teaching, 2 Samuel 24 gives the same story. But in 2 Samuel 24, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Well, how can they both be true? How can the Lord's anger be kindled and Satan stand up against Israel? In Israel at the same time. Does this mean, and this is where people get tied up, does this mean that God and Satan are in cahoots? Does this mean that one of the two books is wrong? Uh, and how do we reconcile these two things? God and Satan are both here moving against a nation. The difference is one is doing it in discipline and love. One is doing it to destroy and cause God's people harm. And so we have this nation being attacked. And what's interesting here, and I do want to dwell on this a little bit, because we've had some conversations around this, nations are held account by God, and individuals are held to account by God. And in this chapter, we get the nation side of things. Israel as a nation is being held account to God's will. And the reality of the Bible is it's both. And, and we also get a sense of this idea of resisting Satan, what we need to do to do it, and the fact that when God lifts his blessing and protection, Satan is right there ready to swoop in and do the destruction. 
And this becomes a pattern that happens that we've seen throughout the scriptures. And it does instruct us as to how to think about our place within a nation, who we are within the church, and how this dynamic works spiritually. So it's a really interesting text in that idea. It's also a critical text of typology and imagery for Christ and how he defeats sin. So this chapter is just amazing. It's one of those kind of benchmark chapters. And if you're just blasting through it, you're like, it's a census. Who cares? Like, they're just counting people. What does that mean? But the, the why they did it, how they did it, and how this plays out is part of what Ezra wants to show the Jewish people. And this message has been consistent in the last few chapters. When you inquire of the Lord, things go well. When you don't inquire of the Lord, things don't. When he doesn't inquire of the Lord about the ark, Uzzah dies. When he doesn't inquire of the Lord as to national policy, 70,000 people are going to die. And so when David doesn't do this right, it goes wrong. And for Ezra, it's like, if we're going to move forward as a people, we need to inquire of the Lord in everything we do. And it matters to do things the way God has set up to do that. So it, everything has to be marked by the inquiring of the Lord or what we call prayer. And if that's not happening, then all efforts of human gathered people are going to go bad. And they're not going to work right. I assume that some t that everyone in the room has some American history. Yet, for younger people in the room, American history textbooks have changed over the last 30, 40 years. So we start losing some concepts of where this falls into and how our founding fathers had every intention of this being a nation that followed this law and this idea of inquiring of the Lord in all things. In fact, the idea of every U.S. Congress session has opened in prayer since the inception of this country. And those prayers have changed over time, and they've become more vague over time, uh, up until we had one that just prayed to a different God other than Yahweh. Right? So that has changed in the last few years. Um, ben Franklin interrupted endless arguments at the Continental Congress. They were in bickering mode. They were in deadlock. The issue they were in deadlock over was slavery. The Southern... States didn't want to count them as voters. The northern states thought they should get a full vote and count as, so they had to find some way through it. Ben Franklin, the veteran statesman, interrupts and he says, you guys, we're arguing. What we should be doing is inquiring of the Lord. And you're like, Ben Franklin, I thought he was some, yes, he was a sinner, right? And the world loves to highlight that. But he also interrupted this Continental Congress saying, we need to go pray. He sent them out of the Continental Congress and he gave them three hours to go to every church in the town across Philadelphia. And he sent out delegates to every single denomination. And he asked the people in those denominations to gather and pray together as they, so that they could find their way through it. They come back from this three-hour hiatus. And within an hour, they find a resolution and a compromise that moves the Continental Congress forward in finding their way through it. But their idea is that they were being blessed when they did it. The reason they're doing this is you look at passages like Psalm 67, Psalms 86. 67 says, That thy way might be known upon the earth as the saving health among all nations. Not just one nation, but all nations on earth. The way of God becomes the way of success and, and, and health for that nation. Psalm 86, verse 9, All nations whom you have made shall come to worship before you, O Lord, and glorify your name. The purpose of Israel was to teach all nations on the planet how to worship God as a nation. And so David taking this census, he's not inquiring of the Lord, and he's doing something of his own, his own volition. When all nations on the earth should be serving Yahweh, this is definitely, when you look at Judaism, it is definitely a global religion. 
the purpose of it was to bring the word of God to all nations so that they can act like Israel does. So if they're supposed to imitate Israel, Ezra, as he's putting this book together, it's very important to establish what this looks like and how to do this. If the behavior is of Israel is a light to all nations, as it is called, then our founders were making every effort to follow that light and to do it the right way. We, I think, need to be reminded of this. And being an old history teacher, I just want to read you a few passages. I think it's worth a little time. 1783, this is George Washington as he served as president of the United States. Um, the proper way to approach God was that the president would, be, would call for a day of prayer. This has been a regular feature, and here's what he says. I just want you to hear the words in this prayer. George Washington, I now make it my earnest prayer that God would have the United States in his holy protection, that he would incline the hearts of all citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to the government, to entertain a brotherly affection and a love for one another, for their fellow citizens of the United States at large. This is the president of this country calling everybody in the country to pray. He's not telling you what denomination to be. So he's not using the force of government to dictate how we come to God, but the assumption is that the president was a spiritual leader for this country. Now, I, I think, and especially I think for younger people, this is hard to even imagine the president as our spiritual leader, right? We haven't seen it in so many years. Um, in 1889, John McCree was asked to paint a portrait of George Washington. You've seen this portrait. It's him kneeling next to his horse. And he did it as a wood etching, right? The, the perception of Washington as a godly man was absolutely widely known in the Americas when it was, they knew he was selected our first president. He was a, at his Presbyterian church, he was an elder at the church. And as president, he published morning and evening devotions and he asked all citizens to do these devotions with him. Right? This is, this is the idea. Here's one of them. I beseech you my sins, Remove them from my presence as far as the east is from the west and accept for me the merits of thy son Jesus Christ that when I come into your temple and compass that your altar that my prayers can come before you as incense as thou wouldst hear upon me calling you in my prayers. Give me grace to hear your calling on me in your word that it might be wisdom, righteousness, reconciliation, and peace to the saving of the soul in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's George Washington. That's not Pastor Washington. That's George Washington, President of the United States, giving devotions out. He had Monday morning, Monday evening, Tuesday morning, Tuesday evening, and he published devotions as President of the United States. That's not even in our current history books because that's a, a, a history that is being purposefully forgotten by the, today's historians. They want to erase this part of our history. And you could say that this publishing of prayer from a, 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 a a president would be, a, that's, that's a, they're, they're not separating church and state. The separation of church and state came from Britain demanding everybody be Anglican. So in their eyes, this was not a problem of church and state. This was an, an issue of the executive branch has really no authority. The Congress gets the money. The Supreme Court gets the law. The president gets nothing but leadership. And to be that spiritual voice, to be that figurehead that would do that, was absolutely how it was formed. Surely that fades by the 1800s, right? But no, it doesn't. Here's Abraham Lincoln, who institutes a national day of prayer for the America. He leads spiritually. 
He says, endow us with your, holy, with your wisdom that in your name we entrust the authority of this government, that there might be justice and peace at home, that through obedience to your law, that's the Bible, we may show forth your praise among the nations of the earth in time of prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness in the day of trouble, suffer not our trust to you and fail, suffer not our trust in you fails. All of which we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Can you imagine Joe Biden praying that prayer today? What kind of firestorm that would cause? He says the name of Jesus. He talks about sin and redemption and peace and justice. This is the President of the United States. Active, public, expected faith on display was the demand of presidents in this country for over 100 years. And you'd say, surely after Abe Lincoln, this just fades away, right? Wrong. Here's Franklin Delano Roosevelt on the day of, well, June 6th, 1944. And if you're a historian, you know that's D-Day. It's a time of trouble in our country. And he, he goes to the country through radio and he asks the entire country to pray. And here's what he says. In this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor. A struggle to preserve the republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity, lead them straight and true, give strength to their arms and stoutness to their hearts, steadfast in their faith, they will need your blessings. By the way, those of you that are all political, he was a Democrat. But it was an assumed expectation that every president of the United States led this nation in prayer. It was their job. It's David's job, too, and this is where they get that from. Surely that was so long ago. That was in black and white era, radio era. Surely that fades. But here we get to, really, World War II was the last of the great generation leading us in faith. But here's Ronald Reagan in 1981. This isn't so long ago. Our nation's motto in God We Trust was not chosen lightly. It reflects a basic recognition that there is a divine authority in the universe to which this nation owes homage. Throughout our history, Americans have put their faith in God, and no one can doubt that we've been blessed for it. Now, therefore, I, Ronald Reagan, President of the United States, by the way, this was a written edict that the President put out of America do hereby proclaim this day as a day of prayer. On that day, I ask all who believe to join with me in giving thanks to the Almighty God for the blessings he's endowed on this land and the protection he affords us as a people. Let us as a nation join together before God. This kind of action from a president's getting demonized in our society today. Yet it's the very thing we need is someone to stand up and lead and say it's time to pray as a nation. And, 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 Reagan conditions it. The previous presidents will say, let's all pray together. They all assume Christianity. Reagan just says, for those he believe, come help me out on this. So you do see a step in that direction. It's an entirely recent phenomena. One generation, you guys, where we have not seen presidents lead this nation in prayer. It's only been a few. In fact, the last time I remember it in my lifetime was September 11th. George W. Bush called the entire nation to prayer. And he says, when things are tough in Britain, they go to the pub, but in America, we go to the church. And that statistic remains true all the way up to 2022. Statista actually did research on it. When people get in trouble in America, they tend to go to religion. When people get in trouble in Europe, they tend to go to the pub. It's a very different environment. The thing is, since in 2000, 
20, the 2022, the reason they were noting this is that number's starting to change in America. We're seeing a higher percentage starting to go to the pub, and they expect in two to three years, it's actually going to, just like Europe, outnumber the people that go to church and faith for their, when they get into times of trouble. So we're vastly changing our disposition as a country. A large part of that is that Christians have no idea what their history is anymore. And they've forgotten that we've just given up that ground as though it's okay. How does Satan attack a nation? He does exactly what he did to David. Get them to stop praying. Get them to stop turning to God when they need things. Even Obama called the country to prayer on May 5th, 2016. Barack Obama. Um, uh, the only difference with him is he conditioned it for all religions. First time in U.S. history is within living memory that we have. And I, I feel sad for this generation growing up where they just think that's how it is. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, both prayed. But if you do any Google search on prayer in Donald Trump or prayer in Joe Biden, you'll find the exact same thing. It's all websites on praying for those two presidents, not prayers that they have from them to us. The directions flipped in just the last two presidencies. To count all people to act like other nations around them, get them to stop acknowledging Yahweh, God of the universe, creator of all things, God Almighty right of the heavens and the earth. Just stop acknowledging the name of God. So first they remove the name of Jesus from the prayers, then they abstract the God from the prayers. Next thing you know, you're praying to other gods is what happened two years ago. Right, that's a progression. It's exactly how this works. So when it says, go number Israel, God owns Israel, not David. And David doesn't even pray about this. He never acknowledges God. And that becomes the problem of running a nation and trying to do it God's way versus doing it your own way. Of course, counting people isn't a sin. God asked Moses to count the people. He did it. Did it twice. He counted the people before the wilderness and he counted the people after the wilderness. But God told him to count those people because he wanted... Moses to realize that he had sustained the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. They went in with 600,000, they left with 600,000. And it's, it, that, that counting actually glorifies God. But this counting David's doing, it's different. And the interaction with Joab there shows that there's people right close to David that have some issues with this. Why do they have issues with it? David says that his heart is that he might know it. That's the reason he's doing the count. He wants to know. And we do this all the time. We count what we own. We count what we have because we find security in all the stuff we have. I find myself, and I'm just going to confess what a sinful guy I am, I find myself some weekends just looking at my bank account going, okay, I can pay the bills next month. And it makes me happy. I find security in that. And yet when times get tough, I, I shouldn't find my security in looking at a bank account and counting things that I might know it. What I need to know is that God is with me. If God's with me, nobody can be against me. That's the truth. So David counts for himself, for his own purposes. And it is, as Joab says, to be a cause of guilt. Guilt is because you've done something wrong. And David counting in, in, in chariots is not the denomination he's supposed to count in. In fact, Deuteronomy says that the kings aren't supposed to count up their chariots and their horses. That's not where they're supposed to find security. Nevertheless, verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab. David wins in an argument. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. 
Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword, but he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. Joab's such a weird character. Sometimes he's this strident, God-fearing, does what God calls, no fear kind of guy. And other times he just defies David. So when David starts to screw up, he's got the prophet Nathan that tells him nicely. And he's got Joab that says, this is abominable. And he's really blunt with David. The end result is he's got 1.3 million people of fighting age, 6 million population by extension. Israel is grown. Why don't Levi and Benjamin get counted? Levites, you guys know the answer to this, right? They belong to God, and they're, the, and they're not to be counted ever. And even Moses didn't count the Levites. They're God's servants, and it doesn't matter to a king how many they have. People debate why Benjamin doesn't get counted. I think the best argument that I've heard is that where it says that he had 470,000 men who drew the sword, and then Judah did, you'll notice that there's already a split starting to happen. He counts all of Israel, and then he counts Judah separately. Do you see how Judah or, or Joab does that? So it could be that this is so distasteful to Joab that he's just done, and he stops up short. Another argument is David does change his mind, and that when he changed his mind isn't chronological here, and that he changes his mind, calls Joab back home, and Joab simply hadn't finished the census yet. Census would have taken about 10 months by most, most people's estimate. So this is almost a one-year event to try to go around town to town, count up how many fighting men are there. Um, this is, by the way, for a soldier like Joab, this is not the kind of work soldiers want to do. This is like sentry post duty. This is the worst. And it's a waste of resources because you're sending soldiers all over the country to do this counting work and this administration that has to go behind it. So it's a massive endeavor that has absolutely no fruit to it. And so Joab's just resisting it. It could be he's resisting it because biblically David's not supposed to do this without inquiring the Lord. It's the same as moving the ark without doing it God's way. Verse 7, and God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. And this is why I did all that stuff with nations. David does something wrong, but the whole nation's going to get the consequence for it, right? This is a unique passage in the Bible. Most consequences for sin are individual. And when God does this thing where it says he struck Israel, means God is lifting his hand in certain areas so that Israel gets struck. In other words, he deals with nations. And biblically, I think people get hesitant about that because we can see where our nation is right now, but it's a truth in the Bible. God does bring punishment to entire nations at a time. When you get to the book of Revelation, there are churches that are listed. And he deals with churches as a whole based on how they've conducted themselves. And you'd say, that's not fair. But if you're part of that church and you're a member of that church and they're doing things that are against God's will, you're accountable to it. So this is an interesting passage for sure in that sense. The word struck, therefore he struck Israel, it's the exact same word that gets used with Uzzah in chapter 13, verse 10. So it's the, it's the parallel kind of account to what happened with the ark. When, God, when David didn't inquire of the Lord, there's a striking, nakah, there's a smiting that happens. He, and this idea of a smite is like spanking a young child. You're not trying to actually hurt the child. But you do want them to get like a sting so that something snaps too when the smiting happens. 
So this idea of snapping somebody through with a physical action or it gets their attention. The purpose of God's discipline is to get their attention. And in this case, God doesn't see death the same we do. People die in this smiting. And I think we've gone through most of the Bible and there's been like driving out. There's ways to, well, God does it this way or that way. But when it comes to his people, this consequence is pretty sharp as to what's going to happen here. Verse 8, so David said to God, I've sinned greatly because I've done this thing now. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant for I have done very foolishly. So this is interesting because we see David as repentant. This is one of his great stinks. David, David makes mistakes but he repents of them. But on this particular one, he argued with Joab about it. The Samuel account says he argued with his captains about it. He was willful on this thing. And to count all these different tribes that they got done counting, he stuck in that sin for a good 10 months, despite the fact that people had told him he was wrong in this. So he's bullheaded about it. So in verse eight, we see this repentance line that pops up. David realizes he's outside God's will and he actually repents. But this wasn't one where he turned quickly like with Bathsheba. This is one where he stuck with it for a while. His habit, however, and this is where we can like David, let's speak on his behalf. He loves God and he's loved God his whole life. His background is as a shepherd, so he knows what it is that when a shepherd doesn't do their duty, the sheep get hurt. And David recognizes, I've done wrong. And the danger of him doing wrong here is that the sheep might get hurt. Later in the chapter, he refers to the Israel as sheep. And he's thinking as a shepherd again. And so this is an example for all nations, all people, all those people wanting the heart of love again in their life. This is what you do to repent. Lord, I've sinned. I've done these things. Take away my iniquity so I can return to you again. It's a great prayer of salvation. And I'm noticing the last month or so, we've had like, what, four or five of these kinds of prayers where there's no rhythm or formula to how we do this, but they include the idea of recognizing sin, turning away from it, and asking for forgiveness. And at that point, God says, I'll forgive anyone who asks. And you can take those sins and they get thrown as far as the east is from the west. That's the deal. So Ezra's focus isn't on the sin of David, but how he returns from it because this is how the Babylonian exiles are going to return from their sin. This is how a nation conducts themselves. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, go and tell David, saying this, thus says the Lord. I like that God isn't speaking directly to David here. There's a distance between those two at this point in his life. And sometimes as Christians... Sometimes God isn't speaking right to us. And that's why it's so important to be connected with other believers. Because sometimes there's things that get in the way of our relationship with the Lord and we need to be around other believers. So Gad is that guy, not the tribe, the person. And the Lord says, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I might do it to you. I have a, like for me, I struggle because he says do it to you, but he's actually, it's going to be done to Israel is how this is, is going. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine, three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. If, we're, if he's asking David to consider it, we should consider these options too. Let's be in David's shoes for a second. So the Lord speaking indirectly to David, 
we see that the law is going to have consequences, period. The option, one of the options is not, I'll just let it go. But God knows that not only David needs to see there's consequences for the action, but when he doesn't inquire the Lord, the people of God get hurt. So this is a test. And he gives David options. That's great mercy. You pick which one's here, and God can see where David's heart is at. David gets to consider which one of these is the one that the king would pick. And how would you pick it? So where does David put his trust, and how is he going to do it? So you got famine, defeated by enemies, and plague. Famine is three years, defeated is three months, plague is three days. All of them are three, 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 complete consequence or punishment being used. And the word for three in the Hebrew is complete. So they're all considered complete. Famine would probably be the one that most people would suffer from. The only people that wouldn't really suffer in a famine are the rich people. So David, being a rich person, could probably avoid that consequence. He could simply buy food from other countries. But the poor people would get hit the hardest and people would die. Three years of famine, that's brutal. Defeated by military enemies, entire towns would suffer, but probably just the border towns. Jerusalem, being high on a mountain, would probably be the last city that the enemies would try to attack. Not only that, with soldiers and armies, the people that would be hurt the most would be the military families. David, being king, would have the most protection in that situation. Three months of losing battles, David could probably avoid that by not going out to war. So the first two are punishments David can avoid. Right? That's one way to think of it. The third one, plague, is impartial, completely impartial, and it hits anyone and everyone. Being rich or poor or being a soldier or a commoner is not going to save you from a plague. It's the shortest of the punishments, but it's the hardest hitting of the punishment. And it's the one punishment David can't guarantee he can avoid with money or position. So this idea of of three days of this hard-hitting punishment, one that David might get hit by, and David's saying, I've, been, I've got the iniquity, I should be the one that pays the price, not the people, right? So if you are a shepherd and a king and you care for the sheep, this choice starts to, if you consider it, it's a fairly obvious choice. You put yourself at the same risk you're putting everybody else at. And three days, that's like pulling off a Band-Aid. It hurts, but it's only three days. Here's the other thing. Since when does a plague only last three days, Right? Plagues last for a year. Bubonic plague lasts for a season, like a lot of years. So the idea that a plague might only last three days, David has to trust in the Lord that that's the case. Right? Where with armies that are having some victories, he's got to trust that those people will stop attacking. And with the famine, he's got to trust that people will ship and, and bring goods to him. And David sees through this in verse 13. David says to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Don't let me fall into the hand of men. The famine and the soldiers, the military, those those are both other humans doing the damage. But with the plague, he's in the hand of the Lord, or there's mercy there. So that's how David frames this. One thought is that there might be a reason um, for this. And this is kind of the naturalistic approach to the Bible. One of the reasons why plague would be there is that it's a natural consequence of a census. If I'm going to send out thousands of soldiers to count troops, I'm literally sending people out into every little village and then bringing them back home to Jerusalem, making a Petri dish for every disease that's running around the country at the same time. So a plague after a census is kind of typical. 
And it's one of the reasons I think God said, don't do this. But then a famine's there too. You got a bunch of soldiers that need food. They're trompsing through countrysides. And then you get this famine. Another thought is that a natural consequence of a census, if your neighboring nations hear about it, which we just got done with a chapter ago, what do they think the king's doing if he's counting up all his soldiers? It's an act of war. You're definitely sending the message to your neighbors that you're ready to do battle with them. You're, you're seeing how you score against the, them. So this idea of less food, armies being at, at, at the warful stance you have with your neighbors, these are all also fairly natural consequences. Plague easily spreading through soldiers moving around. In the flesh, I can endure famine. I can prepare for it. I can get ready for it. Wars can be fought or powered through. So in the flesh, you think, man, famine or war is way better. We can just tough it out. But plague is terrifying to human beings because we can't control it. We can't stop it. It makes strong men weak. It, it, it makes bold, brazen women bedridden. Like it hits everybody. It's just a disaster. In the flesh, we would never pick plague. And like who says it's going to stop in three days? Right? It's not, it's not something we can buy our way out of or burl through like the other two. David picks, picks this idea of plague. God gives you three options in general rule in the Bible. If God gives three options, always pick the third one. Like just as a biblical rule, if I'm wrong on that, let me know. But if God ever gives any of you three options, be very carefully consider number three. It's usually the best one. David parses through this. He figures out the secret code. And he says that human greed and cruelty and militaries are not where he wants to put or expose his people, but he'll trust that he'll expose them to a plague. So people struggle with this. Does God bring plague? Or does God release his protection on a people so that plague can thrive? And they're very different kind of theological perspectives. Whichever one gets you closer to Jesus, I'll agree with. But they're very different ways to approach this passage. And I just want to make you aware that of both of them. So if this gets to be, a, you know, you're at Thanksgiving this year and you're into it with one of your family members, like you got to decide what hill you want to die on. Uh, this is definitely one of those things. David knows God is ultimately defined by grace and kindness, not by plague. And we should know that too. Ultimately speaking, God is a good God. And this, this thing. So those that think God is harsh and cruel, David understands God is merciful. I think that's how we should, what we should walk away from with here. Verse 14. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel. The consequence is coming. And 70,000 men of Israel fall. Samuel here has that the Lord allows it. Verse 1 of our passage is that Satan's being unleashed still. Satan can't do anything without God lifting his protection. And biblically speaking, there's God's removed himself as a protector for three days. And God sends an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. As he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster. And he said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. In Samuel, that's Aruba, Aruba or whatever, and it just depends on if you're speaking Jebusite or Hebrew. The Hebrew is Orman, and that's what Ezra uses when he puts the book together. So this is a horrible day for Israel. Truly, this is a disaster. This is as direct as we get with God actually bringing destruction. Other than the flood, like that's a lot bigger destruction, right? That's the big dog of the Old Testament, is God does bring judgment. It does happen. And as a, re re as a reader, 
And I think for Jews for thousands of years and for Christians for thousands of years, it is the right question to ask, what did those 70,000 people ever do to God? There should be a part of our heart that just says, this isn't fair. This is kind of, why are they getting hurt because David screwed up? And I don't think that's a question we should run from. It's a tough question. It's a grown-up question. But this is, there's a sense of justice that should fuel a conversation around this. And I think rabbis would bring this passage, and this is exactly what they would talk about. Why did they get hurt? They didn't see it coming. We should feel some unjust behavior here, even though we serve a just God. We have to unravel this a little bit. No one should have to pay for somebody else's sin. That's not fair. Yet, when godly people fail to serve God, there is collateral damage to that behavior. If you don't share your faith with somebody that's on a highway to hell, there's collateral damage to that. Um, Penn, uh, uh, Penn and Teller, Gillette Penn of this Las Vegas uh, magical act that's out there, like they've been around for a long time. He's an atheist and he says, here's the thing, if Christians really believe I'm going to burn in hell and they don't tell me about God and try to persuade me away from it, how much do they hate me? How much cruelty and nastiness do you have to have to not tell me how to save myself from eternal damnation? It's a great point. And so it's interesting because this is one of the kind of the big narratives where he, he sits down and somebody actually shares their faith with them. And he's like, I actually respect this person. At least they're living what they say they believe. If you really believe I'm burning in hell, every Christian I meet should be telling me the gospel. And it's just a, a kind of a bit of wisdom from, from a worldly person because maybe we're not speaking that wisdom to ourselves enough. And God uses somebody like, um, Gillette Penn to tell us that. Is that his first name, Gillette? That's an odd first name. David as king is responsible, and responsibility is part of serving God. The impact you have is going to be based on the responsibilities God's given you. God's given David responsibilities, and the impact is as big as the responsibilities he's been given. So when David backs away from inquiring of the Lord, Israel gets hit by that because his responsibility is Israel. See that connection? Everyone in your life is your responsibility to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. That's your domain. That's my domain. And the Lord looked and he relented. So if anything, God does back off of this. David was right to trust in the Lord. And we end up at the threshing floor of Ornan. And this is where I think this, just, this chapter just starts to blow my mind. So a threshing floor is a mountaintop. In any given city, you take the highest point in the city. Hopefully it's a stone top things so you don't have to do much to it but they would often pour a concrete patio on top of the highest point this is where the wind would hit so when the crops came in you brought the crops up to this big giant concrete patio and with in the story of Ruth we see that they actually camp out at the spot because it's a ton of work to bring in the harvest but they throw the stuff in the air and let the wind blow away the chaff the little shells that are on the seed the no good stuff and they let that just blow away with the wind. And then all that's left is the good grain that you bring down to the mill. So the threshing floor of Ornan. Um, the location then of this threshing floor would be the highest point in the city of Israel geographically. And there is a spot that's just north of the Temple Mount that's about like the very top of it's about as big as this room. We're not talking about a peak, but it's about 20 feet higher than the Temple Mount. There's just this little notch just up above it. 
like a like your knowledge bump on the back of your head, right? The Temple Mount is huge, massive, flat area, and then there's this little bump to the northern side. That bump would likely be the threshing floor of Jerusalem, and, and this guy named Ornan, Ornan owns it. And so the site of this is likely the site that when, in Genesis 22, when Abram took his son Isaac, who he loves, into the land of Moriah, Mount Moriah is Jerusalem, and he offers them there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So this spot that the Lord's going to point out later is this highest point where Abraham climbs the hill with his son and leaves the horse behind because this is kind of a tough climb for the horse. But it's at Mount Moriah, and it is likely the spot Abraham went with Isaac because it's the highest point. It's the highest point today. This is the spot where God stopped at the consequence of sin and said, I will provide another sacrifice instead of Isaac. That's the spot. And this is the spot where this plague ends, right? Genesis twenty-two fourteen, and Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. This is going to be a spot that gets identified by God. And it's marked out in the time of Abraham. The, and, and, it, and it says, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. It's in the future tense. So is this God providing in this chapter? Not really, but let's keep looking at this spot. It's a beautiful origin story. God's taking this instance of disobedient with David, but he's using it for his own good. He's identifying the spot of the temple, and he hasn't done that yet. They've moved the ark up to Jerusalem, but this location is relevant. Then we get to 2 Chronicles 3.1, and when we, it was, we go forward a little bit, this is the spot that Solomon begins to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David, his father, in the place that David prepared the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So this spot is going to mark out a giant place where you can build a temple. And this is exactly where Solomon's going to later build the temple at. Why would they pick this spot, this spot that marks this plague that gets stopped, this plague that would go everywhere and destroy anyone? The word Aruna, if you look in the Jebusite, means I shall shout for joy. And the, the, the jaw that gets used is the joyful shouting to Yahweh. He stands by, this angel just stands by on this windy spot that stands about 20 feet higher than the rest of Jerusalem. Anywhere in the city of Jerusalem, you can see this spot. Unless you bring a, build a giant wall around the city, which actually happens later, that wall will block the view too. But you got this high spot where this angel's standing, hanging there with his sword, and he's ready to keep pointing. I, I'm imagining this is a little plague sword that he points it at people and they get zapped or something. Uh, but he's standing on this little rocky hill out at the top of Mount Moriah. This is the spot where God's going to provide a sacrifice for sin instead of the consequences of sin. He'll provide the sacrifice, just like he did with Abraham, just like he's doing right now. And then David lifted his eyes, verse 16, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having his hand drawn, sword stretched out over Jerusalem. This is a pretty important spot in the history of the world. So David looks up and this is what he sees. He, he, asks, he, he asks for forgiveness. He repents. He states his sin to the Lord. I've sinned greatly. And he looks up and he sees this sword of judgment ready to come, but it's being held still by God's order. 
So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. This is how they respond to it. The sackcloth is an image of humility, wearing junk. Like, I'm not going to, I'm taking off all my kingly robes. I'm just going to wear a burlap sack. And this idea of falling on your faces, again, totally humility to God. Any nation whose leaders do not humble themselves before an almighty God, that nation's in danger. And there's some trouble that's on the way. And we don't dabble in minor issues when we're trying to revere God. We affect ourselves to the calling we have. And the sackcloth and falling on their faces, they're putting themselves in the correct position before God. And God clearly defines this location in doing it. He directs them in blessing as they humble themselves to this judgment that's pending before them. And the elders are here too. If they're complacent, then they're right on board with David. But David and the elders have turned and repented in doing this. So David is not God. He recognizes that. He is a shepherd as a king. And this is how kings are defined. And this idea of him saying, you should punish me, not the people of Israel, is David as king saying, I will take the punishment so the people don't have to. Sound familiar? Let me be the one that takes the punishment because the people can't handle it. The flock shouldn't have to deal with this. So this is the heart of David that's exactly like the heart of Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus does as our king. He comes in and says, there's a punishment coming, indiscriminate. There's a plague of sin on the world. And Jesus, on this spot, says, I'll take that consequence. You don't have to. Here's the thing. David's not going to get elevated to the Jesus position here. But he does use this phrase, these sheep. David starts to see, I'm a shepherd and these are sheep and we serve the Lord. We're his flock. And there weren't David's to count in the beginning. They weren't David's flock. They were God's flock. And to save the flock, he's willing to take the consequences himself. But the angel of the Lord, verse 18, therefore, because of this humility, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Again, this is important to Ezra because this is where they want to rebuild the temple. You can't just rebuild the temple in Gideon. You can't rebuild the temple in Bathsheba or Beersheba. You can't rebuild the temple in Babylon. You have to be on this spot to rebuild the temple. This is the spot God has picked out. So it's been marked by this angel. The angel's like pointing with his sword, and God says, I want you to build an altar here, literally with a sword pointing at the spot. This is the spot that's going to happen. So erect an altar. What's an altar do? It's where you give sacrifice. It's a sacrificial location. And and then this is kind of cool. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. And now Ornan turned and saw an angel. This is the guy who owns the lot. The Ornan turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. But Ornan continued threshing wheat. Like this is a burly dad. Oh, what's that? An angel? I got a job to do, angel. Like he's going to continue threshing wheat. I was going to make this point too, as we're, as we're looking at this typology. When Jesus was on the cross giving a sacrifice for the sins and the plague of the world, and offering himself up instead of us suffering and putting himself in that position for us. By the way, on this exact same 20 square foot area of the planet. What were the four gospel writers doing at that moment? And so we got four accounts of Jesus. All four of those accounts agree that the disciples were hiding at that time. It's a really interesting image here that we have four sons that are hiding from this whole scene. They just can't look at it. 
And again, side point, minor thing, Sean Geek thinking, do with that whatever you want. Verse 21, so David came to Ornan and Ornan looked and saw David. And when he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground, then David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I might build an altar on it to the Lord. And you shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Again, the mirroring here is rich. David wants to purchase this at full price. Nothing less than full price is going to meet the demand here. So at full price, when you have this place of judgment, this threshing floor, and you have this place of mercy, the stopped sword, and they're in the exact same location, this becomes the place of both the temple and Golgotha, the law and the salvation judgment and mercy and they both come together on this hill for all of eternity that the plague might be done there's a price to be paid to get rid of this plague justice has to be meted out and so ornan offers him a shortcut and this is really to me this is really interesting because isn't this exactly what satan did with jesus hey you don't have to go to the cross if you want i'll give you all authority of all the worlds if only you just bow to me for a second take the shortcut jesus you don't have to do this And Ornan actually makes a very similar offer to David. But Ornan said to David, verse 23, Take it to yourself and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes, not God's eyes, in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I'll give you everything. I'll give it all to you, David. And the king said to Ornan, No, But I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. Great verse. If something costs you nothing, how much is it worth? If David took this gift, then is it David's offering to the Lord or is it Ornan's offering to the Lord? And David just gets it. Your religion is cheap if it costs you nothing. If it's easy If it's only just making you benefit all the time, what are you giving? What are you sacrificing? Time, money, gifts, talents. If you're giving nothing, you're probably getting nothing out of it. And there's this truth that David understands that that which costs me nothing isn't worth much. So take it to yourself, this offer that gets put out there. But there's a price to be paid. David understands that he doesn't want something for nothing and he's willing to pay the price because he owes it. And so the citizen offers everything, but the king has plenty. David is more than able to cover the cost. Just like Jesus. Jesus is more able to cover the cost of sin than we are. Frankly, and you hear this a lot in Christianity, it's a debt we could never pay. We don't have enough spiritual juju to pay our spiritual debts. But God does. He has more than enough to pay it. And David's thing is, I'm not going to just take this from you. I'm going to pay for it. Offerings with that which cost me nothing. So David resists this urge of all humanity to make religion easy. And he resists the urge. And we often want to satisfy God with the things that don't cost us much. But faith without cost is a cheap faith. Sacrifice without an offering is not really a sacrifice. Our forgiveness is a cost paid by Jesus that cost him everything. And the, what, the only thing God asks in return is that we accept the gift and that we're grateful for it because Jesus did it for us. Our faith doesn't pay for it. 
Our works don't pay for it. It's simply a gift that he's covered and he's paid the full price for us. I just think this is beautiful. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. If you accept the gift God's given to pay to stop the plague from getting you, the only reasonable response is to say, well, I owe you my life, Lord. You can take what you want of it. For whatever it's worth, you can have my life. And it's a reasonable response to God when he's saved your soul and paid the price for it. So David, in verse 25, gives Ornan 600 shekels of gold. I read a lot of pieces where they're like interpreting what that is by today's standards. But in the last three years, we've seen inflation almost double the cost of a house. So this is a really hard number to nail down. Suffice it to say 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place is a ton of money. David gives him a king's ransom, anywhere between $100,000 and a million dollars for a not so big piece of land. But he wants it because he's got an angel pointing a sword at it. So it's worth something. Um, in 2 Samuel, it says that he, he paid less money, but likely 2 Samuel is talking about the threshing floor alone. But at this total of 600 shekels, this is likely for the entirety of Mount Moriah, including this little rocky hillock on the north side. So he pays for this whole area. We see that Solomon builds the temple here, and that's the other piece of evidence that this amount pays for the entire hilltop, because Solomon actually uses it to build a temple. Verse 26, and David built there an altar to the Lord, does what he's told, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called on the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. So the Lord commanded the angel, and he returned the sword to his sheath. This entire interaction with Ornan about the threshing floor, while Ornan hasn't stopped working is happening while an angel's standing there with his sword outstretched. I just, that image to me is kind of an odd thing to reconcile, right? So what did this angel look like? How did they operate with this happening? Or did they just see glimpses of the angel and then the angel went away? Or how did this all play out? Something to think about. But the, the angel puts the sword back in the sheath. So David gets two pieces of evidence that the Lord has heard him. One is fire coming straight from the heavens. We see this with Elijah when he lights up the altar before the priests of Baal. We see this fire from heaven as Shekinah glory guiding the Israelites through the wilderness. And now again, we see this fire as one of the pieces of evidence that God's at work. And the other piece of the evidence is that judgment stops and it ends. And we see a halting of this sort of judgment upon humanity. Burnt offerings are a substitute for sin. Peace offerings our fellowship with God. And they're very different. Burnt offerings get consumed entirely, but a peace offering, we offer it up to God and God says, I accept that. You can give that back to the people and have a barbecue. And both of them are happening here. But the one that God reunites or confirms to David that this has worked is the burnt offering. Take care of the sin and deal with it. Jesus, this is interesting that he does both offerings on this altar. Jesus then arguably becomes our sin offering, covering the cost of our sins. But he also becomes our peace offering in that he comes back to us so that we can have fellowship with God and the Holy Spirit. All happening on this very, very small piece of geography. And he answered him. God sends the confirmation. The next time we're going to see some sort of fire confirmation is on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 1. 
Pentecost had fully come and they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven and a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire that sat on each one of them. God again confirms that his spirit is moving with people in the form of a fire, purifying and purifying in a way that's holy. The other thing with the fire, two other things. One is fire is a way that God consecrates the ground. So this becomes a special place in that God himself has consecrated it. It's the only time that we've seen so far where God commands that an altar gets built. In every other occasion, the godly person just builds an altar to commemorate something that's already happened. But in this case, God is instructing the altar to be built on this location. And again, for Ezra, this is a big point. The location's what's important. You have to leave Babylon to come to where God wants us to do this work. And Israel's mandate in humanity is to put this temple on this mountain. This is still the mandate of Israel, which is why you have whole organizations in Israel trying to get away to negotiate with the Muslims to get a Jewish temple on Mount Moriah somewhere. And how that's going to work out, I think we're going to see in our own lifetimes. Maybe you're, maybe I'm a little old, maybe I won't be here for that. But it's, I think it's going to happen fairly quick in history. So you get this confirmation of fire. Uh, it is a purifying fire. It becomes something that is how God confirms a relationship with humanity. Last but not least, in verse 28, at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. So David goes up now and does a sacrifice. That implies that the burnt offering and the peace offering were for the people in general, a national thing. But David still sacrifices more as an individual thing, that he sees it, he recognizes it, he has to deal with it. So the forgiveness of God and the purifying fire of God is something that still causes David to worship in the form of a sacrifice. So not only does he pay Ornan, but he also sacrifices beyond that. Interesting. And God uses this entire situation of not inquiring of the Lord, but God turns all of this into fulfilling the promise that he would identify where the temple would go. And he's told David he can't build it, but he's using David to identify the location for his son Solomon. So David as a king steps in the way as a shepherd does for his people, and he says, I'll take the punishment. And here's the other thing that I think connects to Jesus. The punishment is unleashed. The punishment of death gets unleashed for how many, what period of time? Three days. How many days is Jesus in the ground? I know I'm like talking to Sunday school right now. Three days. It's not hard to see these connections. But death is unleashed for a season, and then God says, enough, it's over. And Jesus takes the punishment of humanity for three days, and then God relents and says, enough, it's over. And death doesn't hold Jesus in the grave, because Jesus doesn't belong in a grave. And he conquers sin, and he conquers death. After three days, he rises. Verse 29, it makes you wonder how the New Testament would play out if David picked three years. I'm sure God was like, thank you for picking the three-day one. Much, much better than three years. How would the disciples have gotten after three years of wondering what had just happened? For Verse 29, for the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness. Ezra connects this back to Moses. We're at, the time, we're at that time at the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. The same sword that got sheathed. He's still 
okay, there's a consequence for people that don't obey God. And it doesn't, and that's what Babylon was. That was simply a consequence. It doesn't mean God doesn't love the people of Israel. Doesn't mean they don't have a mission on the planet anymore. But sin gets in the way of things to where God will allow things to happen to get their attention, to bring them back on mission and back on path. I'm going to read the first verse of chapter 22 too. Don't think I'm going on to a second chapter. Um, but then David said, this is the house of the Lord God and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. The, and I think it's interesting. Verse 29 and 30 make it very clear that the writers want us to know David recognizes what just happened and he recognizes that that spot in Gibeon where the tabernacle is, he can't go back there anymore because God's purified this site. And now that he knows the site, this is where that temple is going to get built. This is a big deal. God has progressive revelation. And he told Israel that there's this mission and calling that you have, but I'm going to give you this land. And then he says, I'm going to give you a land, and then I'm going to identify a tribe. And then from that tribe, I'm going to identify a city, Jerusalem. And in that city, now he's identifying the place. But he still has to identify the Messiah, the family that will come from Messiah. The Davidic covenant tells us it's going to be of David's family. But there's this whole thing with kings that Chronicles is going to follow that's tracking these promises of God. What's cool is in this chapter, we just got a huge piece of that promise. Now we have the location, literally pointed at by a sword that an angel's holding. Right here is where the altar goes. So God doesn't leave this up to accident or interpretation. Uh, both Ornan uh, sees this and David sees this, so it's not something that he's trusting any one individual. A Gad is a part of this whole interaction, so he's, again, not trusting just David to figure this out. This is a key part of what God's doing, and he's using this occasion to do even good by God's plan. And God's plan moves forward despite David, um, but not in concert with David. And essentially, David realizes this and realizes he can't go to Gibeon anymore for worship because this is the new spot for worship. So Moses prophesied that God would select a place and the fire from heaven's pretty good confirmation that God just picked the place. The sword is a secondary confirmation of it. You have the fire which brings purity and the sword which brings judgment brought together on the exact same hill where Christ is going to get crucified. Sword of judgment and the purity or the fire of God being a thing that can purify or destroy depending on where your heart is. David's heart is now back to the right place, and he determines the house of the Lord is where this place goes. That's the lesson of this chapter. That's what the writers, I think, want us to know is this is how the temple location got picked. This is the story that leads up to that. And you thought we were just reading about a census, but no, we're reading about how God picked the location, and this is how that happened. So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your word, even when it's difficult, even when it's there's tough ideas in it. Lord, help us to not be children and just avoid the tough ideas, but to be growing and, and feasting on your word and not just looking for the easy stuff. And Lord, may we understand that you are a good God and may we know that like David knew it and just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your plan and your orchestration of everything is, is well under your control and your dominion. So, Lord, let us, like David and the elders, just fall before you and put our faces to the ground and know that you are God and you are holy and you lead our lives and that there's no accidents and that all things work together for the plans that you have. And, Lord, we know that, that in every single way you know what we are, who we are, and how we behave. And there's no sin we can commit that shocks you or surprises you. 
but let us repent of those things to seek your purity and your, your holiness. And we thank you for the sacrifice and the offering for sin that you made yourself on the cross, just like you promised Abraham, that you yourself would bring the offering. Thank you for doing that. Lord, thank you for fulfilling all of your promises. It's because of all that you've done that we know that you will fulfill every promise you've made to us. So Lord, we pray as you will that you will return, that you'll come quickly, that your kingdom will come here on earth just like it is in heaven. And Lord, that we can be your servants and teach us how to do that and to inquire of you and to pray to you in all things and not hold back from that or make excuses for it, but just to fall on our face and do it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.